Okay, everybody, welcome. It's Sunday. Sunday fun day, right? Ah, oh, Sunday of a long weekend. How's everybody doing on a long weekend? Are we doing yard work or barbecuing? What's going on? Checking out Top Gun. I think Top Gun's the biggie this weekend, right? I think everybody's checking out Top Gun. Everybody's barbecuing tomorrow. They'll be checking out Top Gun. If they haven't done that already. I was doing yard work. Excuse me, I'm sticky right now. Got to grab some water. I had a little snack, a before show snack. We'll give people time to come in. I may not get hardly anybody because of the holiday, you know, but we shall give it a shot. Because we're going to be reading. It's Sunday fun day for reading. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Hot Paranormal Investigation Team based out of sunny Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state and can help you in almost every county. And if we can't help you in that county, we'll find a way to get up there or to get to that county to help you. Free of charge. Don't you know we uh we donate our services? We're here to educate people about the paranormal, things like that. God, my allergies. I've been, like I said, I was out in the yard for three hours working, so my allergies are wow, you know, real dusty out there. So you're out, you know, Eastern California. Anyway, we'll give people a few more minutes to come on and uh, get back into this book. It's been a tough read for me, but it's, it's actually a really good book. It's just the, you know, the uh, 1800s, the late 1800s uh, language written in there. And, you know, you've got family members on top of family members on top of family members. So keeping track, keeping it all in order and stuff. And then you got attorney speak on top of it. Well, attorneys have their own speak, their own language, just like journalists have their own language. But I'm going to barbecue. I'm going to barbecue today. After I get off the air today and get the podcast uploaded, I'm going to be out barbecuing. So that's my goal today is to barbecue. All right, I'm going to turn my tablet on. I don't want to bore you guys to death. I love summer. Here we go. Let me get the tablet on. I'm going to unplug the tablet. I don't want to have anything dangling from my tablet. My antiquated ancient tablet. See, I have no dialing music and I have no tablet music. <laughs> I, need, I need turning on the tablet music. Okay. And as an add-on here, our 20th show, our 200th show, I believe is going to be on June 23rd. I counted that up, but I do believe it's going to be June 23rd. And uh, I'm excited. It's our 200th show in this format. You know, being on video. And uh, I didn't think we, I was going to get that far. I really didn't. You know, when I first started this, it was just like I was doing like a tryout of, of the format and was to see if I was going to like it or not. And uh, here I am. It's going to be 200 shows. And that's done over like, I think it'll be officially two years of September when I lost the show, I think. As I get my Kindle up. So, as a, 
as the normal things is, grab your popcorn and snacks and all that stuff. And let's get ready to do this today. All right, one more sip of water before I start. If you guys have any questions for me or anything, today's a good day to do it. It's kind of a free day. If you're watching from YouTube, be sure to click on the little ghost in the bottom right-hand corner. He's got a magnifying glass and a Sherlock Holmes hat on. That'll subscribe you. We have more than 250 videos over there. See, it's funny. We have 250 videos over there, but the reality is we've only done 200 shows. So that adds in some extras or some ghost hunt videos on there from when we were good. When, you know, before COVID, ghost hunting and stuff like that, which you can check out too. Okay, we're going to read for about an hour, and uh, hopefully I don't get lost reading like I have been. It's just, like I said, there's a lot of uh, lawyer speak, and um, a lot of relatives to sort through, and questions and answers going back and forth, and it kinda, it's, a, it's a great book. Rebecca Pittman's an excellent writer, but it's, it's a great book, but I have to be really careful about, you know, raising stuff, and who's doing what, and all that. Okay. I'll give you an update. Uh, when we left Lizzie, she was on trial. Lizzie Borden, right? And there, 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 and there were also some flashbacks in the book from, from when she was young and stuff like that. So technically right now she's on trial. Because this book is going to cover her trial, what she did after the trial, what she did before the trial, and the haunted bed and breakfast that exists now, where that house is. Okay. But we obviously we have to go through the steps. So, okay, without further ado, the topic of this section of the book is called Carousel Horses. John Morris's plates were still spinning faster and faster as July continued on in the unrelenting New England heat. The trips from South Dartmouth to Westport, Westport to Fairhaven, Fairhaven to New Bedford, New Bedford to Fall River and Fall River to Swansea and Warren must have been dizzying. Lizzie wasn't the only one following his every move. The police were showing an active interest in his pursuits, even before the day of the murders. New Bedford Daily Mercury, Tuesday, August 9th, 1892. State Officer George F. Seaver, Fall River, Massachusetts. Westport promises something and again comes to the front in the flat contradiction of John V. Morris's statement that he had no knowledge whatsoever of the horse traders at Westport, State Detective Seaver said. Before I knew anything about this case whatsoever, I heard that a large consignment of wild horses to John V. Morris had arrived at Westport, and I went down to see them. I wanted to see the Mustangs and see them last and see them lasso them. Lasso them. There were 80 horses, I should think, together. I went down there with a gentleman from Westport Factory and saw the horses in the field. They were consigned to John V. Morris of South Dartmouth. There are farmers, and it is the best place to make a trade. There had been an auction, and about 12 horses had been sold by the auctioneer. That was a week ago today, exactly, and Morris was the man to whom they were consigned. The murders happened about two days later. 
and I knew nothing of the case until Thursday night. According to the New Bedford Daily Mercury, Tuesday, August 2nd, 1892, two carloads of horses direct from Iowa have been pastured on the land of, of, of Stephen P. Kirby during the past week. They have attracted many visitors, and several of them have been sold. When confronted during his inquest testimony by Knowlton about the horse business making headlines before the murders, the attorney asked John Morse, Knowlton, Have you any connection with the horse business? Morse, not recently. I bought some horses here when I, when I came here two, year, two, two years and a half ago. Knowlton, all sold out now? Yes, sir. Knowlton, have you had any dealings in the horses since? Morris, a little along occasionally, not to amount to anything. John's business partner, Mr. William Davis, was also heavy into horse trading. Mr. Davis was involved with the band of traders at Westport. When police interviewed him concerning his involvement with the itinerant horse dealings, he denied any connection and backed up John Morris later when a reporter cornered he and Mr. George Howe when they visited a Mor- when they visited Morris a few days after the murders. Stephen P. Kirby owned the land where the horses were pastured. He was a farmer, born and raised in Westport, Massachusetts. He was married twice. His first wife was Harriet in Brownell of Westport. She died and was buried in Fairhaven, Massachusetts. It is probably not a stretch to consider her a relative of the Brownells, with whom Emma Borden was vacationing in Fairhaven during the time of the murders. Helen Brownell and her mother, Rebecca, were more than just good friends of Emma's. They were related to the Bordens through their great-great-grandmother, Penelope Reed. If Harriet Brownell was indeed related to Helen Brownell, then Stephen P. Kirby was related to the Bordens, and hence John Morse, through a, through a convoluted chain of familial events. A Charles C. Kirby owned the livery at 13 Rock Street in Fall River, the same livery from which John Morse rented a horse and buggy the day before the Borden murders. If that isn't enough to give Kevin Bacon six degrees and run for its money, George E. Howe is also cousins with John and involved in the horse deal. This is the same George Howe that John visited the morning after the murders. George owned a drugstore in Fall River across the street from the post office. John came into the store Friday, one day after the murders, to purchase a stamp for a letter he would send in haste to William Davis. He then dashed across the street to the post office a post office obviously without stamps. So, the horses are on Kirby's farm two days before the murders. On the day of the murders, the Fall River Herald said, <clears throat> excuse me, regarding John Morris, nothing definite about his affairs is known other than that he had told friends that he had brought a trainload of horses with him from Iowa to sell, and they were now at Fairhaven. Fairhaven. Emma's vacationing in Fairhaven, and Kirby's ex-in-laws may be living in Fairhaven. It would appear the horses were hurriedly moved to Fairhaven as the police interest in Westport ramped up. To where? Helen Brownell's father, Alan Brownell, was a sea captain. He married Rebecca Delano in 1837, and they had, seven, they had several children, one of which was Emma's friend Helen. Sadly, two of Helen's brothers died young. When Alan Brownell retired from the sea, he took up his dream of being a gentleman farmer. The 1870 census states his occupation as farmer. The 1880 census lists him simply as agriculture. He is also listed that year as a retired sea captain at 80 years of age. Helen and her elderly mother, Rebecca, are living in Rebecca's brother's house 
Moses Delano at 19 Green Street during Emma's vacation with them during the murders. Helen's father, Alan, passed away in 1884, and women were probably unable to keep the farm up. Did the, did the farm Helen's father owned still exist, run by someone else in the family? Would it be a good temporary stop for a herd of wild mustangs? There are also Morris relatives living in Fairhaven, as mentioned earlier. Charles and Mary Morris. Did they own some property suitable to pasture a herd of horses, just passing through on their way to their new home? During the days leading up to the murders, the players in this dangerous game tried desperately to move each piece into place. The horses resembled a whirling carousel by this time, as they were moved from Iowa to Westport to Fairhaven. The next stop would be to move them over to the Swansea farm within a few days and begin a new venture. But Lizzie had other ideas. Chapter 6 A Train Riding to Bedford On July 15, 1892, only two weeks before Andrew and Abby Borden are found hacked to death in their home on 2nd Street, the two sisters decided to sell their deed to the Ferry Street house back to their father. Charles C. Cook was questioned by Officer Medley shortly after the murders. Mr. Cook stated, I am business manager for Mr. Andrew J. Borden, for the Borden block. I did not see Mr. Morton th Mr. Borden Thursday, the day of the murders. I have had the charge of the block almost since it was built. He used to come in once, once in a while, but not every day, nearly always alone. The only other person who ever came with him was his wife, excepting once when Lizzie came with him, to sign a deed conveying some property she owned to her father. This property was owned jointly by the two sisters and was situated on Ferry Street. Excuse me. Lizzie has been in three or four Lizzie has been in three or four times. Once she came in to ask me about the value of the property. About the value of sorry. Came in to ask me about the value of the property she was going to convey to her father. I told her and she went away. Officer Medley, Mr. Cook. Officer Medley. Mr. Cook, did you know of anything that would lead you to imagine that Lizzie and her father did not get along well together? Cook, I do not like to answer that question on account of my position as custodian of the property, as I do not know what my relations may be with the family when this thing, the murder case, is settled. Several things are of interest here. One, that Lizzie had been in several times to see a man who is, who is the custodian of the property for her father's real estate holdings. At that time, Lizzie's and Emma's only owned property was their grandfather's house on Ferry Street, which their father gave to them to placate the sisters after their blow-up concerning his gift of the house on 4th Street to Abby's sister. What other business did Lizzie have with Charles Cook? Was she fishing to find out if transfers of deeds were in the making? Asking to see the Swansea files? The second thing of interest is Lizzie's apparent lack of trust in her father. She wanted to know the value of the Ferry Street house before she sold it back to her father, a question Andrew could have answered. Yet, she asked his manager. As it happened, Andrew paid Emma and Lizzie $5,000 for the deed, 2000 more than its value. And thirdly, when asked if Lizzie and her father got along, Mr. Cook declines to answer. As it is possible, he will continue to act as property manager for the sisters as they will inherit their father's properties, which he did. If the relationship between Lizzie and Andrew was, was amicable, you would think he would answer to that point. The fact that he declines to answer is suggestive. 
Had Andrew S. Cook to specifically keep details from Lizzie pertaining to his affairs, should she ask? Did it become apparent to the manager that all was not well in the Borden household? Three days after the sisters deeded back the house on Ferry Street to their father, they headed off for the summer vacation. As mentioned earlier, that they chose this time to sell Andrew back the property is interesting. New Bedford and Fairhaven. On July 21st, 1892, Emma and Lizzie Borden boarded the train for New Bedford from the Fall River Brownville Depot. For Emma, the trip was long overdue. According to Rebecca Brownell, the mother of the friend with whom Emma was traveling to stay, she told the reporter for the New Bedford Standard on August 25th, 1892, Emma had intended to remain at Fairhaven all summer. Yet, she had waited two months into her treasured vacation away from that house of hate. Why? Was it to make sure that Lizzie boarded the train with her? Lizzie was expected in Marion, a seaside resort about 25 miles from Fall River. It was home to some very elite families who had summer cottages there. Dr. Handy was one such denizen. He offered his cottage to his daughter Louisa and her friends to enjoy for their summer vacation. Many of the girls had gone over earlier to begin their fun near the water. Lizzie had waited. Whether Emma watched her younger sister's face nervously as the train passed through the heavily wooded scenery is not known. The dramatic events escalating at the Borden home in the preceding months were certainly not lost on her. Break-ins, fights, beheaded pigeons, and rumors of theft. Was there relief that she was finally getting Lizzie away and would be free of her sister's theatrics and rages for a full, glorious, peaceful six-week with friends? The Brownell's cozy home was only steps from the popular Fort Phoenix Beach with all its recreation and soothing sea breezes. As the conductor shouted out the new Bedford stop ahead, Emma may have reassured Lizzie, it will all be all right, go and enjoy yourself in Marion. Emma and Lizzie alighted from the train. Emma would continue the short distance to Fairhaven by electric car, and she believed Lizzie would continue on to Marion, a short ride away. The sisters hugged and parted ways. Emma's trolley car turned a bend and vanished from sight. Lizzie did not continue on to Marion. She headed into the downtown New, she headed into downtown New Bedford to begin a secretly planned five-day visit. The plot thickens. According to office medley statements made the day following the murders on August 5th, in accordance with instructions, I visited New Bedford. I find that Lizzie Bourne arrived in that city on Thursday, July 21st and went to Mrs. Poole's, the mother of a friend, a former schoolmate, living near South Water Street. While there, she never went out alone, always going in the company of the family, with one exception, that being Saturday morning, July 23rd, when she went on the street to buy a piece, to buy a piece of dress goods of some cheap material, being gone about one hour and 30 minutes. She went alone and returned alone. No one called to see her while there. She never made mention of her family affairs. On Tuesday, Mrs. Poole and Mrs. Poole's daughter went to ride to Westport to see Mrs. Poole's daughter, who was a school who was a schoolmate, a schoolmate of Lizzie's, and who is now married to Cyrus W. Tripp. They spent the day there, leaving time enough for Lizzie to connect with the train at New Bedford for, the fall, for fall River. That was the last time the Poole saw her. While at Westport, Lizzie saw no one outside of the family. 
The report states Lizzie went out alone on Saturday, July 23rd, two days after her arrival in New Bedford. She returned with a piece of dress goods of some cheap material. Lizzie never testified about buying cheap material while in New Bedford. In fact, her inquest testimony quickly changes to a purchase of a dress pattern instead. The report does not mention two other excursions Lizzie made during her trip to New Bedford, one of which occurred during that one hour and 30 minutes she stepped out alone on the New Bedford streets. Attorney Knowlton questioned Emma Borden during the Superior Court trial in June 1893. Knowlton, had you seen Lizzie during the two weeks? Emma was vacationing with the Brandles in Fairhaven. Emma, yes, sir. Knowlton, when? Emma, well, I can't tell you what day it was, some few days after she had been in Fairhaven. Was it Saturday? No, sir. Knowlton, was it on her way over to, to or back from Marion? Emma, oh, I do know. She went to New Bedford when I went to Fairhaven, and I think it was the Saturday following our going Thursday. Knowlton, that is, she went to New Bedford the same day you went to Fairhaven? Emma, yes, sir. Knowlton, how long did she remain in New Bedford? Emma, until the following Tuesday. Knowlton, this is from Thursday until Tuesday. During that time, do you know, did she go to Marion? Emma, no, sir, she did not. Lizzie's secret trip to Fairhaven on that Saturday morning, when she returned with a piece of dress goods of cheap material, gives one pause. Obviously, Mrs. Poole didn't know her visitor had hopped an electric car that made a straight run from New Bedford to Fairhaven. And why was it hidden from the police reports early in the investigation? Officer Medley, concerning, the Fairhaven, concerning Fairhaven, made out police reports on another matter. On August 13, 1892, Medley states, went to New Bedford today to investigate about a man acting strangely in a druggist store on North 2nd Street, kept by William H. Drummond. A man stopped into the store, and he was hungry, bought a glass of soda and a few sticks of candy, lounged around the store a little, for a little while, looking once or twice up and down the street. He said he lived on Chestnut Street, Fairhaven, and went away. Description of the man, 5 feet 6, age 45 or 50, complexion dark, wore blue clothes. Did Lizzie make a quick run to Fairhaven to talk to a farmhand she may have known earlier, either from working on her father's farm or the Brownell farm in Fairhaven? At 45 or 50, the man may be out of work and looking for money. The description of dark complexion and blue clothes sounds like it could possibly be describing a Portuguese, a Portuguese or farmhand. Men in that era did not wear blue suits. Lizzie was also friends with the Brownells and, doubt, and doubtless spent time with them over the years. Mrs. Brownell was interviewed by the New Bedford Standard on August 25, 1892. In speaking of the tragedy, Mrs. Brownell did not hesitate to speak strongly in support of Lizzie's innocence. She said that both the girls always spoke in endearing terms of their father. That Lizzie found the need to buy a piece of cheap dress material to show the pool's as her reason for being away that Saturday morning, is suggestive. The material is never seen again. Did Emma lie for Lizzie on the stand when she said Lizzie's reason for being in Fairhaven was to visit her? Or was Lizzie there to see someone else? Perhaps to run by the more relatives living in Fairhaven and see if they just happened to have 80 Mustangs running around? To meet with a dark-complected farm worker? Or a more chilling thought? 
Did Emma know about Lizzie's intent to kill Abby, a woman Emma detested even more than Lizzie, according to Emma's testimony? Was Andrew's murder a tragic follow-up based on the turn of, turn of a clock's hands? Would this give a more ominous meaning to Lizzie's warning to Dr. Bowen the day of the murders, when she asked him to telegraph Emma in Fairhaven, but don't tell the facts for the lady whom she is staying with is old and feeble, and the shock may be too much for her. When Bowen left to send the telegram, Abby's body had not yet been found. Was Lizzie afraid of, afraid the shock would be to Emma, not the lady who was old and feeble? That their father was dead when the plan had been only to kill Abby? The telegram is stamped 11.32 a.m. Emma does not arrive home until 5 p.m. Yachting and Marion. Fall River Evening News, July 27th, 1892. Sloop yacht Mabel F. Swift was at Marion, Monday, where the following ladies from Fall River are stopping at Blake's Point. Mrs. James F. Jackson, Mrs. Edith Jackson, Jenny Stalwell, Anna C. Holmes, Mary L. Holmes, Mabel H. Remington, Louisa O. Remington, Alice Buck, Alice Buck, Isabel Frazier, Louise H. Handy, Elizabeth Johnson, Annie C. Bush, and Lizzie A. Borden. The owner of the yacht, Charles W. Anthony, is cruising with a party of friends, including Honorable Simeon Borden, Honorable James F. Jackson, and Messrs. Holder, W. Durfee, William Winslow, and R. W. Bassett. Mrs. Poole's testimony to Officer Medley was that Lizzie was only out of their sight once, which was a clandestine outing Saturday morning, July 23rd, resulting in her trip to Fairhaven. Yet, she is spotted and reported on during an outing to Marion, only minutes from Bedford on Monday, July 25th, with the ladies with whom she was to vacation. On July 26th, she and the Pools visited, visit Augusta Trip in nearby Westport. Westport was also where John V. Morris's horses were being pastured. Suddenly, the trip to New Bedford to visit old friends shows a different agenda, one that went beyond horses. Lizzie plans on a five-day trip to New Bedford, where she is supposed to begin her holiday in Marion. Why? The sudden visit to stay at a boarding house run by Mrs. Poole, her friend Augusta Tripp's mother, seems an unlikely choice. When Lizzie disappears that Saturday for an hour and a half, she returns with some dress goods and cheap material. What if the material was not just to be to was not just to establish an alibi? What if the real reason for a side trip to New Bedford was to buy some cheap material and have a dress made? one with special features, and one she, would, she wouldn't mind disposing of later. Is it a coincidence Andrew Borden mails a letter on July 25, 1892 to John Morse, telling him not to send the man John has found to take charge of the farm and to wait until I see you? Had word reached Andrew that Lizzie had not traveled on to Marion, but had made a detour to New Bedford? For whatever reason, Andrew told John to wait. Andrew's premonition that Lizzie was up to something became apparent when she suddenly arrived home Tuesday evening, July 26th. Indeed, she had not gone on to Marion and began her month-long and begun her month-long vacation after all. 
the panic Andrew and Abby must have felt at this sudden turn of events when the wheels were turning on the transfer of the Swansea farm and the horses were en route must have bordered on Epic. From that Tuesday night's arrival until Lizzie suddenly leaves again for Marion on Saturday, July 30th, we know nothing of the excuse she gave as to her seemingly random movements. She did go to Marion and spend the day with the girls at the Handy Cottage, Saturday, five days before the murders. But her thoughts were elsewhere. While seated around the table in the Handy Kitchen, one of the girls asked her, Lizzie, why don't you talk? Lizzie admitted to Alice Russell a few nights later that at the moment something came over her that she could not shake off. Lizzie left and headed back to Fall River to put into action the events that were culminating two deaths and the destruction of multiple livelihoods. That mysterious Sunday. From the time Lizzie boards the train from New Bedford to Fall River, we have no reports of her for five days. There is nothing in the testimony or witness reports that show where she was during that time, up until she shows up at home unexpectedly, early Monday morning, August 1st. It could be that she didn't return home at all, yet we do know one thing. Alfred Johnson, the overseer of the Swansea Lower Farm, and Frank Eddy, manager of the Upper Farm, were both taken sick within the days leading up to the murders. Andrew Borden sent John Morris to check on Mr. Eddy Wednesday afternoon. August 3rd, as he had been ill for a while. Alfred Johnson was still indisposed on Thursday, the day of the murders. August 4th, when Marshal Hilliard, the Fall River Police Chief, drove over to the farm to interview the man. Before Lizzie arrived home Monday morning, August 1st, she believed Andrew and Abby were headed to the farm that Monday to begin their summer vacation at the lower farm. People around town voiced surprises, voiced surprise that Andrew was not over there and Andrew had told John to write to him at the farm so I won't have to bother with it. When John was ready to get the two cows for William Davis, Abby told John the afternoon before the murders that they were expecting to go, but had changed plans at the last minute when Mrs. Mrs. Vinicum couldn't accompany accompany Abby to the farm. It was assumed they were going there. If Lizzie had had a murder plot in mind, it would be the farm, where where it would need to be carried out. The South Swansea Depot for, for the Old Colony Railroad that ran <clears throat> from New Bedford and Fall River to Swansea was only a short five-minute walk from the Borden's lower farmhouse, where the family summered. Carl Becker, with the Swansea Museum, told the author it was nothing for women to walk in those days, often a mile or more. Larry Rebello, author of Lizzie Borden, Past and Present, walked it, walked it while helping with the research of his book. Five minutes. Farm wagons and hacks were always at the depot, and happy to give someone a lift if they were heading that way. Lizzie hadn't been around the farm for at least five years, as she had testified. It's possible no one in the vicinity of the depot recognized her. Lizzie walked down with Gardner's ne- walked down Gardner's Neck Road. It was after five in the afternoon, and Alfred Johnson would be home and Andrew Borden's other house up. The road, at, at Andrew Borden's other house up the road, across from the station, or over at the Eddie's for supper. She knew the routine. Abby and Andrew were expected the next morning to begin their August vacation. Looking about her, Lizzie walked up the short dirt walkway to the farmhouse's kitchen. And, and 
the farmhouse's kitchen door answered her key. She stepped into the room with its wood-burning stove, hand-pumped sink, small table, and chairs. It smelled the stale air after being shut up for so long. Alfred Johnson, who lived up the road, checked on it, kept the trees trimmed, and the well kept the trees trimmed and the well primed. But for the most part, it remained empty when the Borden family was not in residence. The ghosts of summers passed when the family sat around the old kitchen table, eating eating the fish Lizzie and Andrew caught that day, rose from the worn flooring and shimmered across the faded curtains. Ignoring the sudden fluttering in their, in their stomach, she left the room. Lizzie walked down the, down the hall to the back bedroom. She used when she and Emma vacationed with her father and stepmother. Five years had passed and barely changed it. She felt a tug on her heart when she saw the old apron hanging on the hook in the closet that she would wear when she fished Coles River with her father just down the slope outside. Her mood sank, bordering on depression, and she slumped into a chair near the window. She sat there until the shadows deepened and the room's furnishings blurred in the ensuing darkness. At four the next morning, Alfred would leave a can of fresh milk on the porch outside the kitchen in preparation for the Borden's arrival. The milking was done at the barn on the upper farm, only a buggy ride or train or train depot away. A new dress had been made in New Bedford for her, one with a loose pigeon blouse and full skirt. The new hatchet was obtained in a way that could not be traced back to her, and the arsenic was in her purse. She had written to her Aunt Mary Morris, who lived only eight minutes away, away in Warren, that she would love to visit her and, and the girls tomorrow before she headed down to Marion to begin her August vacation. Today, a large barn at the Upper Farm location is the pro shop for, for the Tuasset County Club. It sits directly on the Pierce Road, only 10 minutes from the old Coles Depot. The golf course claims the barn is the original to the property. It may or not it may not be the same barn where the Borden cows were milked. It could have belonged to a different family leasing some of Andrew's farmland. It may, however, be sitting in the correct location. If the Borden barn was demolished, as the foundation and drive were already in place. The original cow stalls can still be seen, and the barn is said to be very old. This was to be the location of a huge cattle endeavor for Andrew Borden and John Morris. As the final days of excuse me, as the final rays of light filtered into the small bedroom on Gardner's Deck Road, Lizzie reached into her satchel for, for the pouch of arsenic. She felt the soft weight of it in her hand, and thought back to the night she broke into the second street barn to steal it from the painter's supplies. Would it be enough? She knew nothing of poisons, only what she had read. Would it mix with milk and kill them? By five the next morning, Lizzie was was locking the kitchen door to the farmhouse as she prepared to head home. As she walked down the dirt path that leads from the small barn past the farmhouse to Gardner's Neck Road, she glanced back to see the milk can waiting on the kitchen steps, glinting in the early morning sunlight. Chapter 7 Monday, August 1st, 1892, three days before the murder. 92 Second Street, Fall River. It had not worked. The clouds above 92 Second Street hung low and dark, pregnant with rain. 
although the temperatures had dropped from the debilitating heat wave that had suffocated the city the week before, claiming 90 lives in its oven-like maw, the community at 8.45 that Monday morning clung to her bedroom drapes and wrapped around her face like a hot washcloth. Her corset shut off what breath had mustered its way up from her lungs, and perspiration puddled beneath the fabrics of her chemise, petticoat, waist blouse, and skirt. The two windows of her bedroom were open wide in hopes of a vagrant breeze. It served only to allow the relentless sound of horses' hooves, metal buggy trappings, people shouting, and the constant banging of metal against, against stone coming from, Crow's, coming from Crow's Mason Yard, only 50 feet east of her window. The pounding found its way into her temples, a staccato rhythm mirroring the thoughts that would not abate. It had not worked. All her planning, the secret trips to New, Bed- trips to New Bedford, Fairhaven, and Swansea, all for naught. They hadn't gone to the farm after all. She heard her father's voice coming through the wall that separated her bedroom from his. She had planned only to stop at the house, pick up a few things, and head to Warren to see her Aunt Mary, and then on to Marion. But they were still here. They usually left by eight when they vacationed on the farm. Their plan to rob her of her inheritance would go through now. Perhaps they were still going over later this morning. The milk would still be sitting on the kitchen steps at the farm. She had to hope for that. A loud bang from the Fall River Ice Company, only two lots away, made her jump. Her nerves were on edge. The constant sound of the ice sliding down metal chutes played like background music to the repetitive best of the stone cutter and the rhythmic sawing from the laborer just on the other side of the fence, creating a jarring symphony with the clatter of carts out front. It was never quiet here. 92 2nd Street was surrounded by commercial concerns as varied as any main street. From laundries, deliveries, grocery stores to restaurants, the Borden house sat in the center of it all. While up on the hill, homes were encased in flower gardens, and the sounds that floated into the glass lace curtains were those of birds and small children playing. Lizzie Borden sat upon her bedroom lounge that that rested between the two windows facing south. A petite woman of 32 years of age, she stood five five feet four inches tall. Her eye color depended on on the descriptor. Many described them as a light blue, others brown, and her passport from 1890 listed them as gray. Large, cat-like in shape, and slightly protruding, they looked out upon the they looked out upon the world with an unwavering calm. Though at times, they flashed with anger, and a look described as peculiar by those on the receiving end. Those same eyes darted about the room now, as her thoughts raced. Her mind was in overdrive. If they didn't leave for the farm this morning, all her plans would have to change, and quickly. They thought she was so stupid that she hadn't always been one step ahead of them. The arsenic she'd stolen from the barn when the house painter was there in May was now inside the milk can at Swansea. She had placed the white powder into the fresh milk, stirred it around with a nearby stick, and held her breath. It finally blended with the white foam, and she screwed the metal lid back in place. It had taken only moments. Yes. There had been a risk, 
going there on the old Colony Railroad that ran right by the farm in South Swansea, hoping no one would recognize her and praying the farm had finished the afternoon chores and was gone. It was risky, but she was desperate. And no one had noticed her. It was the perfect. It, it was perfect. Abby and her father would drink tin milk and die. On her way to see her, Aunt Mary, only a few minutes by train from the summer home, she would stop and use the hatchet on their bodies, making it look like a maniac came in and killed them. By the time they were found, she would be safely away at Marion for her long planned vacation, and everything would be wonderful. It didn't matter now. They hadn't gone to the farm as planned. They were still here. An unbidden thought flitted through Lizzie's mind. What if someone else at the farm drank the poison milk? Alfred Johnson, the overseer, or Mr. Eddie? It caused her only a moment of hesitation, and she had swatted away the image like an annoying fly. The lace curtains lifted beneath the, beneath the momentary breath of air. The fetid odor of the Croquetian River wafted in the room. From only three blocks over, the biting acrid smell of smoke billowing from the Fall River Ironworks chimney stung her nostrils. The smokestack rose an impossible 350 feet in the air. It soot covering the town in perpetual dusting that maids washed from their employer's windows each Thursday. Her stomach tightened. She felt dizzy and nauseous. What would she do now? Lizzie bent forward, lowering her head in an effort to quell, to quell the spinning sensation in her head. It sounded like that of rushing freight of a rushing freight train filled her ears. Her father, obviously having gone downstairs, was saying something to Bridget below. His eye, her eyes fell upon the dark paint stains along the lower portion of her blue Bedford cord skirt she was wearing. The paint. Another plan, so perfect in its conception execution gone she was sick of the old faded dress one she had not planned on wearing today or ever again she was sick of the house sick of the noise sick of her life just then the bell on the other side of her wall sounded in her father's bedroom it was the extension of the front doorbell she glanced at her small clock nine o'clock who would be calling most everyone knew her father was supposed to be spending August at the farm. Lizzie crept out of her room onto the, onto the second floor landing and tried to see the front door. She took two tentative steps down the staircase and watched as her father crossed the front entry. Andrew Borden opened the door and said something in hushed tones to the person on the outside step. The noise from the street rushed in over his shoulder, along with a blast of humid air. Finally, he stepped back and allowed a young man in strange clothing to enter the front hall. The stranger wore dark pants with a darker stripe of material running the length of his leg. His shoes were the most peculiar. Lizzie had never seen anything like them. They were a russet brown flat shoe that laced up with odd rubber-looking heels. He was carrying his soft felt hat in his hands as Andrew led him into the sitting room. Lizzie turned and climbed quickly to the landing, crossing into the, <clears throat> excuse me, crossing into the guest room that sat next to her own bedroom. She hurried across the Brussels carpeting to the west-facing window and looked down to the busy street below. 
A hooded carriage was parked in front of the house. She could only see the knees and hands of the driver who was waiting outside. Tiptoeing to her room, she shut her door. Quietly, she closed her two windows to shut out the noise from the outside. She knelt down before the unused fireplace in her room. Reaching into it, she pulled loose the brick on, on the south side that shared a flue with the sitting room below. Picking up a four-inch length of plumber's pipe she had gotten from the box in the barn, she placed one end into the brick open, opening and the other, and after seating herself on, on her bed, placed the other into her ear. Seeing, seeing an air, air trumpet used by an elderly person had given her the idea. She had opened the flue in the sitting room fireplace over a year ago to overhear the conversations from that room, knowing no one would check it. That the fireplace in her room sat directly above the one in the sitting room below had allowed her a private means of eavesdropping, as she discovered by accident one evening when muffled voices drifted up from the open flue in her room. She found by removing the brick from the south wall of her fireplace that shared the flue with the room below, she could hear plainly what was being said that her father and stepmother sat there exclusively to hold their discussions had been perfect. It was also where they sat with John Morris and conducted other business. At first, Lizzie had tried listening from her open window facing south, which sat directly above the sitting room windows. But the noise of the street and the crow's stone cutters made that impossible. Sitting on the stairs leading down to that room had garnered only snippets of words and murmuring. Once the radiators had been installed, the fireplaces were strictly ornamental. A large bed was pressed before the fireplace in the guest room. One could still see the mantle behind it. Only the opening in the dining room had been walled off, had been walled over with fake front of brick to offer room for more furniture and to keep out drafts. Its old wooden fireplace front rested against the north wall of the barn loft outside the day of the murders. Parentheses, only one fireplace front is found during the investigations, and only one is mentioned as being walled up, the dining room. That the other fireplaces were still there is evident by the case drawings of the time and the position of Lizzie's bed. Andrew and Abby's bedroom had been used as a kitchen when the house was originally built to accommodate two tenants, one upstairs and one down. A stovepipe opening identical to the one in the kitchen below their room was closed off, a separate chimney opening allowing the release of wood and coal smoke from the cook stove. It is still visible today. As Lizzie crouched in her bedroom, her breathing became more labored, muffled. Muffled voices came through the fireplace opening, and she pressed the pipe closer to catch their words. It was obvious her father it was obvious her father was keeping the conversation with the stranger low. She heard only snippets of words. Out of town, partner, you are mistaken. The young man's voice was stronger, and she realized from his words the plot to take away the Swansea farm from her went deeper than she thought. The deed would be signed over to Abby on Wednesday, only two days from now. Her lips pressed into a white chalk line. The game was on. The conversation ended, and Lizzie tiptoed out of her room and back into the, in, into the guest room next door, her cheeks aflame. As she was crossing the landing, she heard her father say, 
a little too loudly in what appeared to be a fake farewell to the person pretending to be interested in running a store and for her benefit. Come again when you're back in town and I will let you know. She looked down from the guest room window and watched as the young man walked down the short walk, opened and closed the front gate, and climbed into the waiting buggy, gesturing to the driver. He had only been with her father ten minutes. She noticed a man in a buggy sitting near Hall's livery across the street to the north, watching the two men as well. The rain snapped, and the buggy carrying the young visitor merged into the second street traffic. Lizzie strained to see the driver's profile through the opening at the back of the buggy. He appeared to be a young man as well, and she did not recognize him. She was running out of time. Her mind spun as she tried to come up with an alternative plan to stop Wednesday from coming, at least for two members of her home. A crack of thunder sounded from outside. The day was dark and the earth sodden with moisture. Lizzie hid, hid the plumber's pipe beneath her bed and left her room. She crossed along the short landing to the door facing her room. Inserting a skeleton key into the lock, she entered a large room that functioned as the Borden sisters' dress closet. The room measured about five feet by eight feet and was called a clothes press. The sole window was padded with an oilcloth and a long white sheet covered the dresses. To alleviate dust and sunlight, I'm sorry, covered the dresses to alleviate dust and, and the sunlight from fading the brilliant colors and scale of the silks. She selected a blue walking dress. As she left the room and turned to lock the door, her eyes fell on Abby's only garment hanging in that closet. On a hook toward the back corner, Lizzie's heart raced. There would be an empty peg in the crowded closet very soon now. The lingering odor of breakfast was fast being replaced by the fresh smell of soap flakes dissolving in hot water in the cellar. The pungent smell of starch wafted up through the open cellar door as Bridget Sullivan, the Borden's maid of old work, sloshed the family's clothes and washed them below. Thunder shook the house as, Liz as Lizzie entered the kitchen, dressed to go out. Andrew had gone downtown on his routine rounds of business transactions. Lizzie poured herself a cup of coffee, watching the darkening day unfold from the window above the sink. Abby entered the kitchen from the dining room, she jumped slightly at seeing Lizzie there. She and Andrew were still showing ragged nerves. Lizzie's unexpected return from her trip to Marion to begin her vacation had unsettled them a great deal. This was the second time she had started off, only to pop up like a jack-in-the-box days later. Good morning, Lizzie, Abby mustered, as she stood there in the doorway. Did things not go well in Marion? You're not ill, I hope. Lizzie eyed her from over the cup's rim, and she slowly sipped... And then she sipped slowly at the, hot, at the hot coffee. I was worried about father, she said in low measured tones. With you away at Swansea, I did not want him eating his new meals alone here during the week. He works so hard, excuse me, just, and he is no longer a young man. Abby paused and then said in a voice that sounded meek and vulnerable, We have had to postpone the trip for now. She, noticing a sudden flush on Lizzie's face, Mrs. Vinicum was going to accompany me to the farm, so I wouldn't be alone when Andrew is taking care of his business concerns. She is waiting to hear if her sister from out of west from out west is coming to visit or not. There is no need for you to forego your plans with your friends. You go on ahead. You can always go another time. 
Lizzie's thoughts were racing as she studied the short, stout woman before her. Abby was fidgeting with her skirt and smoothing a stray strand of hair, her nervous actions giving her away. I cannot go right now, Lizzie finally managed. I am expected to attend the Christian Endeavor Society meeting Sunday, as I was asked to substitute a secretary for the recording of attendance and the minutes. It's the first Sunday of each month, and I can't break my word. I shall go to Marion on Monday. As I won't be needed at home, perhaps I shall write to Aunt Mary and Warren and see if I might visit with her a day or two, perhaps Thursday or Friday. And Friday. I have not seen Elizabeth and Henrietta for a while now. Abby was not aware of the letter, was not aware the letter had already been sent, or the dates requested for Lizzie's visit, or much sooner. If they didn't leave for the farm today, Lizzie would have to change her plans. Abby's face, never one to mask its feelings, became a kaleidoscope of emotions. They went from surprise to fear. She struggled to find another excuse to get Lizzie away from the house before Wednesday, before Wednesday afternoon, but she could find nothing. Liz Lizzie set down her cup and walked past the woman she detested, only giving way to her feelings as she mounted the stairs to her room. She sat down on her lounge and tried to drown out the noise thrumming against the outside glass of her windows. She was tired of the, pa of the panic constantly gripping her heart. She sat there, wheels turning in a fevered mind. They weren't going to the farm today or any time this week. She had to change gears. The plan formed slowly in her mind. She played with it, moved this piece here, rearranged that signet there until it was solidified. This could work. Saying she would stay with the Morrises a day or two brought her time. Abby couldn't force her to leave for Marion. And if Abby and her father did suddenly leave for the farm, she would be only eight miles away at Warren. Easy access to Swansea. The farm, the milk can, and them. Whether she killed them here or killed them in, Sw in Swansea, she would need more poison. She used all she, 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 used all she had stolen. Rain began to fall, plopping on the hard-packed road and striking the metal roof of crow's, bars, of a crow's barn to the east of her, she checked her hair in the dressing mirror, picked up her satchel, and descended the stairs. Abby was moving about the kitchen absentmindedly, checking her pantry, her thoughts somewhere else. She jumped when Lizzie entered the room, wearing a waterproof and wearing a waterproof and carrying an umbrella from the hall coat stand. Abby stepped from the pantry and into the open kitchen area, as though to speak to the girl. She watched, her heart thudding as Lizzie passed managing a small smile, and walked down the back entry to the side screen door. As she opened it, she glanced back at her stepmother, still rooted in place, the dark clouds outside casting, casting the kitchen into shadows. The rain picked up in intensity, falling and pelting droplets that hit Lizzie's open umbrella in, in the rhythmic tattooing. The roads would be muddy soon, but at least the constant dust raised from the horses' hooves would be lessened. As she headed down street, people passing her on the sidewalk nodded her, nodded, nodded her way, some offering a good morning, Miss Borden, or a more familiar, Miss Lizzie. Lizzie hastened to a nearby drugstore on Pleasant Street. Philias Martell 
Phileas Martell, the owner of, was not in, but his clerk, young <laughs> Hippolyte Martell, greeted her. After slowly perusing the aisles of merchandise, giving the impression of an innocent shopping trip, Lizzie approached the counter and asked the clerk for some arsenic. When Hippolyte, I think it's Hippolyte, paused, she said, price is not a problem. Finally, finding his voice, he informed her that, as the druggist is not present, I cannot possibly comply with your wishes. Lizzie left, clearly showing her disappointment. Undeterred, she headed north to E.S. Brown's general merchandise store on North Main Street. She approached the pharmacy counter at the back of the store and informed the clerk there by the name of Gifford that she wished to buy some poison. He refused her. Lizzie had always believed arsenic would be a simple thing to obtain. It was readily sold at drugstores and had been used by so many people in the Victorian era to dispose of wealthy relatives that it had been given the nickname the Inheritance Poison, possibly due to its widespread overuse for nefarious reasons and now required a doctor's prescription to obtain it. Remembering another book she had read concerning poison, she seized upon a new plan. Perhaps it was only arsenic being regulated. She would ask for another poison, although she was not as familiar with its application. Marching back into the Phileas Martell drugstore on Pleasant Street, she approached the, the, the apprehensive face of, uh, of Hippolyte Martell and said simply, How about prussic acid? The clerk again said his hands were tied, and it would be best if she returned when the druggist was back from dinner. Hippolyte later described her to the police as being about 26 years old and weighing around 150 pounds. As many newspapers would later report, Lizzie looked good, 10 years younger than her age. As Lizzie Borden dashed about Fall River's downtown district, she may have just missed her father as he came and went from various banks and businesses, either owned or sat on the board of directors. He was taking inventory of his businesses and directing a deed to be drawn up, one that would cause his funeral procession through the streets of Fall River, one that would... Yeah, one that would cause his funeral procession through the streets of Fall River only five days later. As the rain increased, beating down on his stovepipe hat, Andrew Borden's mind was in turmoil. What was he to do with his youngest daughter? Hadn't he given her everything within his power to make her happy? Even a five-month grand tour of Europe had only inten intensified her fiery temper and mood swings when she returned home. Andrew's thoughts turned to his eldest daughter, Emma and how she had given up her larger bedroom to Lizzie in an effort to ease her younger sister's transition back into the little house after seeing the world. Emma moved into the small closet-like bedroom that abutted Lizzie's new domain and hoped the exchange would make her sister happy. The exchange of rooms lifted her spirits for a time. As Lizzie turned it into a bedroom parlor, complete with red-hanging portieres, a private wash area, Lounge, writing desk, bookcase, and dressing table. Picture postcards of the many places she visited in Europe were probably displayed, along with a few precious souvenirs. Her bed was placed diagonally near the corner door leading into Abby and Andrew's bedroom. The fireplace mantle and hearth prevented the bed from going corner to corner, leaving a space where one could walk around the bed's headstand to the door that was bolted on her parents' side and hooked on her own. One door, separating daughter from father, 
double locked against what? Against whom? Chapter 8. Tuesday, August 2nd, 1892. Two days before the murder. Tuesday morning dawn with oppressive heat and the mugginess that hangs on after a rainstorm. The sun was shining, and the noise of business trade on 2nd Street could be heard through Lizzie Borden's open bedroom windows. Rather than waiting until breakfast was over, as was her custom, this day she made it a point to join her family at the table. She was dressed to go out, a letter she had pinned to her sister resting in an oversized satchel. The tension at the breakfast table was palpable. As British brought in fresh, fresh uh, I'm sorry. Let me go back on the. As Bridget brought in fresh coffee, the maid glanced apprehensively at the strained faces of the three people seated in the dining room. Abby looked pale, her eyes darting between her plate and her husband's face. Lizzie merely sipped at her coffee, a slight flush in her cheeks. Once the maid left the room, closing the dining room door behind her, Abby took a deep breath and began. Andrew. Twisting nervously in the seat. Lizzie, are you sure you won't go on with your plans? As you can see, I will be here to take care of your father, and you need not postpone your trip to Marion. You can always come back on Sunday to take care of your church meeting. Abby's small smile, meant to look reassuring, merely came off as nervous and faltering. Tension hung over the table, as heavy as the August humidity outside. Abby Borden was a short woman, only slightly smaller than Lizzie at 5'3". Her face was round with, with a somewhat... Hang on. Her face was round with a somewhat vacuous look about it, created by a mouth that turned down at the corners and eyes that looked trusting, yet tired. Her dark brown hair was threaded with gray and caught up atop her head, a fake braid twisted and pinned to add style and convenience. She was 64 years old. Her weight was remarked upon often, as she tipped the scales at 220 pounds. Her simple joys in life were her husband, her family on 4th Street, and her immaculate home. She sat and waited for Lizzie's reply, sweat, sweat puddling along the folds of her neck. Lizzie, Lizzie let her steady gaze wander from Abby's face over to her father's, who would not meet her eyes. A wave of mixed emotions. I'm sorry, a wave of mixed emotions flashed through her as she studied the balding head fringed with white hair, now bowed, as he picked at the last of his food. She had loved him so much. Images of them fishing and Andrew taking her with him as a child, as he worked in his early carpentry business, rippled through her mind, causing a momentary stirring of pain. He would be 70 next month, and he looked it. His face, once chiseled and determined, looked beaten and strained. She noticed the habitual twisting of his lips, his short beard moving with them. Okay, guys, that's it for tonight. And I will continue this next week. Let me see how far we have to go with this chapter. Hang on. Yeah. So we'll continue up next week. It'll be part four. And, uh... Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. At least <laughs> now we're off the trial, so that's going to help a little bit <laughs> with the family names and stuff. So thank you guys for coming. And tomorrow we'll be back at 6.30, our usual time, for our, our regular show, California Haunts Radio. 
that we are going to have Don Allison on, who is a journalist like me, and he um, it's hot in here, and he was a non-believer in ghosts, and he happened to be visiting Gettysburg and came face to face with one. So uh, you guys can see his journey and what happened after that, because once the doors were opened, he saw more and more ghosts. So that'll be tomorrow. Anyway, if you like the show, share it with five people. Excuse me, if you hated the show, share it with five people anyway. We're equal opportunity here. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, visit us at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com or you can visit us at CaliforniaHaunts.org. Uh, the ticker you see at the bottom is, is there because, like I said earlier in the show, we don't get paid to do any investigating or anything like that. So it all comes out of my pocket for expenses, gas, you name it. And plus the stuff here, you know, whether it's the microphones, it's the cameras, whatever. If something breaks, I have to you know, come up with it. It'd be great if you could give me a hand and help me out here. You know, I'm paying internet costs and everything else here. I really appreciate it. You can do that at paypal.me at California Haunts or uh, go to Venmo and just type in California Haunts. But anyway, I want to thank you all for coming and I will see you tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Bye. <laughs>